Uh, it was a little over a year ago, uh, the Pittsburgh Synagogue Tree of Life was attacked during Shabbat morning services. You might remember this. Uh, it was one of those mass shootings that we're kind of getting used to. Uh, Eleven people were killed, seven more were injured. The gunman said he just hated Jewish people. That was the rationale. I just hate Jewish people. I just want to kill Jews, he said. It raises a rather important question. I would say one that's even more important than questions like, should a church have armed security? Or should we have a death penalty for crimes of this nature? Or should we have stricter gun control laws? All good questions, good debates, and so. But the question I think it raises is this. Where does something like that come from? I mean, it seems these things are happening, as I said, more and more often, almost to the point that we get used to it. And these things keep happening despite human ingenuity and despite politics, despite education. Nobody seems to be able to fix this. There's an author, Fleming Rutledge, who put it like this. She said, obviously, something is terribly wrong with the world and needs to be set right. That, I would say, is the understatement of the year. We wonder when stories like this gain our attention and and are flashed on the television screen, where is God or is there a God? We wonder if life can be snuffed out so suddenly with so much hatred and so unfairly. Does life actually mean anything at all? Will there ever be justice? I mean justice, really, where these kinds of things stop altogether. And for people who follow Jesus, these kinds of questions always lead, oddly enough, to the cross, the place where Jesus died, to this place where we believe somehow suffering and God and death, they all meet. People die every day. That's not news. Since the beginning of recorded history, death is not new. It's not unusual. Every day, about two people die every second. About 105 people die every minute, or 56 million a year uh, die in every way imaginable. Just getting old, accidents happening, poisoning, violence, natural disasters, wars, cruelty, hatred, yet one death stands out in a way that really is completely unique. One day a man died on a cross, And ever since then, time has been divided up into the people who lived before that man and the people who lived after that man. The life of every human being now is dated from the death of that one single man. And that man died for you. And he died for me. And he was a good man, a very, very good man. He died a very bad death out of a very great love for you. And for me, in our day, there's a big debate about whether uh, we live in a story, a big, grand, purposeful story, whether our universe has any meaning or is just kind of a cosmic accident, you know, whether you were made by God and are the object of his his self-sacrificing love or whether that idea is just stupid, is just foolish. One day, the apostle Paul was writing to a church at Corinth, and he said these words. He said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And here Paul divides all humanity into two groups, quite distinct groups. He says there are those who are perishing and then there are those who are being saved. And you understand this is not a threat from Paul. This isn't Paul trying to get people to endorse a particular religion. It's not an attempt to manipulate people to make some kind of an emotional commitment at all. It's simply an observation that he's making, namely that you are an unceasing spiritual being. And you will either move toward God and all that's good and all that's noble and all that is holy, or you will move the other way. It's one or the other. Paul says those who are being saved are being saved not by themselves, not by the things they do, but by God, by the power of God. And that power comes unexpectedly through this thing we identify and talk about the cross. It's a measure of the significance of Jesus' death that we would never refer to other means of death the way we refer to this thing we call the cross. I mean, think about it. We would never talk about the gun or the knife or the gallows because nobody would know whose death you're talking about. But if anybody mentions the cross, I mean, even though countless thousands of people died on countless thousands of crosses, everybody knows exactly whose cross you're talking about. You're talking about Jesus and his cross, this good man who died 2,000 years ago. I know hardly anybody who would argue with this, namely a lot of what we have come to admire in our world when we see this in people, things like humility, things like the virtue of being a forgiving person or things like sacrificial love, particularly love for the marginalized among us or love for the vulnerable or love for people who are powerless, people like the the leper that Jesus encountered or the beggar that Jesus encountered addressed or the, or the woman who was caught in adultery that Jesus forgave, a lot of what we admire in our world comes to us primarily through this man's life and this man's teaching, this man Jesus. And he was not political. And he was not really religious, not in any conventional sense. But his message of devotion to God was, was threatening to both institutions alike, religious institutions and political institutions, and of course he knew it would be. Ironically, it was the power of Rome, historically, one of, the, one of mankind's greatest, most powerful forms of government that elected to crucify him. Rome was very good at killing its enemies. <laughs> but this is crucial. All four Gospels make this crystal clear. And Jesus himself insisted that his crucifixion was not something anybody was doing to him, but rather it was something he himself chose to do. He said this one time, he said, no one takes it, meaning his life, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Friends, nobody has ever said things like this, you understand. He was executed on a cross by the Romans on a Friday, and that was the end of his story, or at least that's what everyone thought. Until three days later, that was not the end. Word got around that Jesus had flunked death. 
Uh, his followers began to go back and think about this, what, what he had taught and how he had lived. And they began to reexamine the Hebrew scriptures that they had available to them. And they began to ask God for guidance. And it began to dawn on them that the cross, which of course at first looked like disaster, failure, humiliation, the end, was instead kind of like the missing piece of a puzzle. It pulled everything together. It made sense of everything Jesus had been saying for the last three years and that the scriptures of the Hebrews had been talking about for several thousand years. And nobody saw this coming. And yet once you got it, it changed everything. Uh, in his own life and teaching, Jesus was what one writer has called the great reversal, the great exchange. Uh, he taught things like this, and we just we got done studying this not too long ago as we studied through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would say things like, blessed are those that the world thinks are not blessed, like those who mourn and those who are meek. Jesus said the least are the most. Jesus said the poor are rich, the first will be last, and the last will be first. He said you have to die in order to live. He said in weakness is strength, in serving is greatness. And now his cross becomes literally the fulcrum of that kind of thinking. It's where the ultimate great exchange or reversal happens. I come to the cross and I exchange my guilt for his innocence. I come to the cross and I exchange my woundedness for his healing. I come to the cross and I exchange my weakness for his strength and my brokenness for his wholeness and my foolishness for his wisdom and my death for his life. The message of the cross says that something is wrong with this world and it needs to be set right. And only God can do it and he does it strangely, oddly, unexpectedly at the cross. We're beginning a little series this morning. It's called The Cruciform Life. And we'll be examining our lives and our world and our faith in light of the cross. And today, all I want to do is tell you the message of the cross as best I can. And then I want to invite you to make the great exchange, the great reversal. I want to invite you to consider the cross and give your life to this man, Jesus, to lay it down, to let it go, to follow him with everything you have and everything you are. So you may be one of those who are being saved and not one of those who are perishing. That's what we're going to do. Okay. What can you say? <laughs> so here we go. At the cross, our guilt is exposed. That's really number one. Jesus' friend, Peter, who knew all about guilt, remember Peter, the guy who promised he would never leave, he would never forsake Jesus, even if these other guys did. Peter, who knew all about guilt and all about the cross, said this about the crucifixion. He said, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He could have. When he suffered, he made no threats. He could have. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, his heavenly father. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, Peter said. Now, 
we, like Peter, know all about guilt. We don't like thinking about it, but we all know. The message of the cross is that something is wrong in this world and it needs to be set right, but that something is not just out there. It's also in here. The wrong, the evil in the world is not primarily related to economics. It's not primarily related to politics. It's not primarily related to education or ideologies. It's not primarily uh, technological or biological. It is wrongness, ill will, and moral failure inside of me and inside of you. That's the really big problem. And we know this. Uh, It's the deceit in us. It's our turning a blind eye to the needs of others when we actually could do something, but we choose not to. It's our bad parenting. Any parents here that are not bad occasionally? I'd love to meet you. Uh, It's our cruelty sometimes to each other. Any spouses here that haven't at some point in time been cruel by the things you said or did or didn't say and do? By the lust, the gossip, the judgment, the racial injustice, the hatred that's inside us that we tend to cover up. You see, it's in here, not just out there. At the cross, here's the thing, our guilt is exposed. You can't even begin to understand or appreciate the cross until you understand and engage with your own guilt. That's number one. Here's the second thing. At the cross, our guilt is paid. This is a huge theological wow, (laughs) In Jesus on the cross, God had done something nobody, and I mean nobody, expected. Followers of Jesus noticed something as they puzzled over the cross after Jesus had hung there and come back to life. When Jesus was crucified, everybody was guilty, you notice, everybody. Pilate was guilty of injustice. The Pharisees were guilty of envy, hatred, murder. The soldiers were guilty of cruelty. The crowds were guilty of one day loving him, just a few days later mocking him and calling for his crucifixion. The disciples were guilty of cowardice, denial, betrayal. Everybody was guilty but Jesus, the innocent one. And Jesus allowed himself to be judged guilty so that the guilty could be judged innocent. Over time, people came to see this had staggering, staggering implications. In the cross, we see the vast guilt of human sin. We see the ugliness, the violence, the injustice, the hatred, all these things that are in us and out there being judged and condemned by God. God was doing what any and every just judge would do. But in the cross, we also see God's determination in Jesus to offer mercy and forgiveness at ultimate cost, ultimate price to him. At the cross, we see Jesus dying for people who were killing him. If you come to the cross and you make this this great exchange or reversal that I mentioned earlier, you don't have to go through your life or your death anymore worrying about this guilt that you do have. Paul said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, again, one day a man died for you. 
That is the message of the cross. Something else. At the cross, Jesus gives us life. Jesus' friend and later apostle John wrote these words. He said, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, that's kind of a strange image for us in our day. Uh, If you know much about the Bible, the New Testament is filled with references to the blood of Jesus. Um, The writer of Acts says, for example, that the church was bought with his, Jesus' own blood. It's an interesting metaphor, an interesting illustration. Paul says that we have now been justified by his blood. The writer of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Uh, Today, we live in a pretty bloodless culture. We stay pretty far away from slaughterhouses and butcher shops and things like that. And so in our day, people will sometimes find that kind of imagery gruesome and just distasteful and don't really want to hear it, don't appreciate it. But understand in the ancient world, blood was everywhere, everywhere. Uh, they knew all about the significance of blood. It's, uh, it's interesting. They knew that it was through death, through the eating of dead animals and dead plants and the shedding of blood when you were dealing with an animal, that living creatures were giving, given life, that life came actually out of death. That was visible to them all the time. They were very aware of this so that there was a practice in ancient cultures, a practice of sacrifice, offering sacrifice to the gods, and those sacrifices were often then portions of them given back to the one who was offering the sacrifice, and meals, life came from offering sacrifice. This was a universal practice in the ancient world, one of the striking teachings that came through Jesus' people, through Israel, through the prophets of Israel, was that the ritual of sacrifice was not at its heart what God really wanted from people. (laughs) That was a very interesting and a very unusual idea. The psalmist expressed it this way, speaking to God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Broken about what? Well, broken over our guilt and our sin. That's what God wanted most of all from people. And that's what on the cross Jesus somehow offers. On the cross, when it was Jesus uh, shed blood, it, it means when we read about Jesus shedding his blood, we're actually reading about Jesus giving his life. That's what he's doing. He's giving his life to us. He offered the sacrifice that would actually end all sacrifices. On the cross, he became and was called the lamb who was slain. You see, out of sacrifice comes life. Jesus' followers, as they reflected on the cross, came to realize that his blood poured out, his life poured out, was God's own sacrifice to judge our sin and to forgive us and to cleanse us. That was all happening in Jesus and his death on the cross. It was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It is, as a matter of history, the spread of the message of the cross that slowly stopped the practice of animal sacrifice in that ancient Mediterranean world. And so one day, again, a man died for you. That's the message of the cross. 
Another thing, at the cross, the grave is overthrown. Part of the message of the cross is that there is a great battle going on in our world between vast powers, powers that we don't readily see. Uh, and in our hearts somewhere, we all know this to be true. Uh, good versus evil. We feel that in us. We observe that out there. Guilt versus redemption. Love versus hate. Heaven versus hell. Life versus death. Death is an awful thing. There was a study done a few decades ago. It was paid for by our government. Probably cost hundreds of millions of dollars. It was a study done on sympathy cards. Uh, you know, often when somebody dies, uh, we will send the family a sympathy card. Well, guess what word is never, ever used on a sympathy card? It's the word death. It never says, hey, I'm really sorry that this person died because that word is just too ugly to us. We look for a nicer way of saying it. But the fact of the matter is we all feel it. We all know it. Death is bad. Death is ugly. And the power that is uh, also named in the Bible, that thing which causes death is this thing called sin. Sin has great power in and over every one of us. Sin is something that in our day and age is kind of trivialized. But we see it every time a shooting like that shooting at the synagogue happens. We see it every time we offer hate or resistance or anger towards someone we should be loving and serving and sacrificing for. There's a writer, Lance Moreau, wrote a book one time, it was actually many years ago, called Evil. And he says there's a fascinating difference between the two words wrong and evil. Uh, true confession for a moment. How many of you have ever told somebody, a friend, a sibling, a parent, or a boss, you are wrong? How many have done that? Sure, it's not that big a deal, is it? Uh, how many of you, and you don't need to raise your hand on this one, but how many of you have ever told somebody, you are evil? Probably a lot fewer of us. Maybe almost none of us. Uh, wrong suggests an error that can be fixed. You know, a computer goes wrong, a toaster goes wrong, a person can make a wrong turn, a wrong decision, and most likely that can be fixed. Evil is different. A computer doesn't do evil. A toaster doesn't do evil. Here's the problem. People do. We do. We really do. But this idea of evil is almost too much for us, so we rarely go there. The word evil tells us or reminds us of what we know deep down. And that is that we live in a universe where we are not in control. We are not even in control of ourselves. Have you ever said something evil that you wish you could have back? Evil happens all the time in us and out there. This is why Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual thing, you see. People keep getting this wrong. We think it's just a flesh and blood thing. If I get better educated, I'll stop doing wrong things. Yeah, not so. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, your enemy is not people. 
No matter their race, their creed, their sexuality, their color, their, color, their behavior, there, there is evil in the world and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be dealt with. And the cross is the place where somehow the great destructive powers that I've been mentioning, things like sin and guilt and death and evil, these powers sought to crush Jesus and all that is good through cruelty and through hatred, but they did not realize that this carpenter, this rabbi that was getting nailed to a cross could absorb all they had and triumph by loving and forgiving right to the end. They did their worst and God defeated them. Not through coercive power, not through mutual hatred, not through retaliation, but with suffering and sacrificial love. That's how God defeated these powers. So the Apostle Paul says that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by, of all things, the cross. As he hung there, he was triumphing over these powers. There are forces in this world, friends, that are too much for any individual to overcome. There are forces in you and me that are too much for us to overcome. There are things like political systems out there that are evil, immoral ideologies, completely upside down values that impact our culture. For example, how many here believe we should save the whales? Yeah. How many here think we should save babies? Yeah. Upside down values. There are addictive idolatries galore in our culture and in us. Drugs, alcohol, sex, money, power, which are simply demonic in the destruction that they cause. Spiritual forces are real, but in our culture, they're hard to name sometimes. And yet, uh, they get people to throw away and damn their lives in the most trivial of ways. Just watching TV. I have a hunch someday, many of us are going to wake up to the fact that we spent hundreds of hours watching TV and we could have taken some of those hours and done something better with them. Throwing away and damning our lives in the most trivial of ways. Just using porn. Nobody knows. Just using porn. Numbing yourself with drink, numbing yourself with pot, numbing yourself with drugs. Just worshiping money. I've got to have more, got to have more, got to get secure. Just tolerating deception in your life, not speaking the truth to yourself. Just cherishing bitterness and living your life in a place of bitterness. You're angry at that person that did you wrong and it consumes you. Just living cynical, hate-filled, us versus them kinds of lives right up to the point when you die. And when you die that way, you are but a shadow, a ghost of the person you were supposed to be, the person that God meant for you to be, and you didn't even know it. That's demonic, friends. That's very clever of the evil one. And it happens in us. And it happens in our culture everywhere, all the time. Paul says, on the cross, those powers met their match. 
Because on the cross, you see, the cross, it tells the truth about you and me. To appreciate the cross, as I said before, you've got to engage the truth about you and the truth about me. The cross tells the truth about sin and its destructive force and power in our lives. The cross tells the truth about God and his love. The cross is where Jesus' power to absorb the suffering and still love was stronger than their power to inflict suffering and still hate. The apostle Paul said, none of the rulers of this age understood what was happening on the cross. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. (laughs) Who can make this stuff up? This is such an unusual story. They, They could stop his lungs from breathing, but they could not stop his heart from loving you. On the cross, really death died. On the cross, really, hate died, sin died. The grave was overthrown. On the cross, the love of God wins the victory. At the cross, I exchange all of my many defeats for the great victory that Jesus wants to give me. Friends, one day, again, one day, a man died for you. That's the message of the cross. Something else, at the cross, you see, I've got 12 of these. This is number five. No, this is, we're almost done. At the cross, you see the full measure of God's love for you. You see that displayed at the cross. You know, we all love stories. This is part of what it means actually to be a human being. As far as I know, we're the only creature that actually writes and embraces and engages in story. And the story we love the most, the one that keeps coming back in so many different forms, is the story of that one man who died for somebody else. He died for somebody he loved very much. I mean, that's the story of things like Saving Private Ryan. That's the story of Les Miserables. That's the story of A Tale of Two Cities. That's the story of a thousand, thousand enduring stories. When our children were really small, I was always telling them stories. Uh, One time we were on a long ride to Canada, riding in the family van. They were getting sleepy. Holly was thrilled because it was going to mean a moment of peace and quiet. So to lull them to sleep, I told them a story about a prince. And uh, this is a prince who was brave and who was handsome and kind of also haughty and arrogant and proud. But the prince had a horse and the horse was noble. The horse was good. The horse was humble and the horse loved the prince way more than the prince deserved. And it was a really good story about the adventures that these two had together. And I got a little carried away at the end and there was a great battle and there was an arrow fired and headed straight for the heart of the prince. And the horse saw this and jumped in front and took the arrow in its own chest. And the the prince then realized at the end how good and noble his friend the horse had been. And the horse died in the prince's arms. And when I finished the story, the kids were crying in the back of the van. (laughs) And Holly says, really? The horse died? (laughs) You had to make the horse die? You could have had a few moments of peace and quiet, but no, the great storyteller makes the horse die. And in my defense, it's just the way good stories go. And the message of the cross is the reason that that's true. It's the reason. It's the reason this story is embedded in our literature. 
and our art and our movies and our universe. Because this story, you see, is embedded in our hearts, whether we know it or not. Paul said, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were sinners, enemies, rebellious, ungrateful, unthankful, rejectors of Jesus and God himself. While we were that, Christ died for us. That's the story, the story. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for people who get shot. Jesus died for people who do the shooting. I don't understand that kind of love, but I need that kind of love. Wherever you are or wherever you think you are on the moral scale of humanity, Jesus died for you out of love. And at the cross, he exchanges his death for your life. One more thing, and with this we'll end. At the cross, friends, you have to decide. For 2,000 years now, people have been hearing the message of the cross. And kind of unexpectedly, it faces them with a decision when they hear it. How will I respond to this? What am I going to do with this? Uh, how will I live my life from now on having heard about the cross? What will my posture be towards this man who died on the cross? And some people reject the message. They just call it foolishness. They don't believe it. They don't embrace it. It doesn't faze them. Some people have an idea that this is important and something they should respond to and they procrastinate, which I might add is just the same thing is doing nothing with it. Some people find ways to distract themselves, and boy, are we good at this, especially today. Smartphones, TVs, movies, drugs, pot, recreation, consumerism. I mean, we, the list li literally is just endless of ways that we would distract ourselves from thinking about the things we ought to think about. But some people say yes. They come to the cross and they bend their knee and they give their heart. They surrender their lives to this man, Jesus. And at the start of this little series that we're diving into, that's what I'm inviting us all to do today is to meet Jesus at the cross and make the great exchange, his life for yours, his righteousness and goodness for your sin and misery. Uh, there's a card that you came in and threw on the floor or sat on. Uh, you can pull that out if you would. All it is is a prayer. Uh, also put it on the screen, I think. It's just the kind of prayer a person prays when they want to make the great exchange, their life for Jesus' life. It says, Lord, I've decided to follow Jesus. I no longer want to be in charge of my own life because that's what following Jesus means. You're not in charge of your own life anymore. Instead, I want to identify with and surrender to Jesus. I trust in you, Jesus, to forgive my sins through the cross and to become my guide 
and my God. And I exchange my guilt for your innocence, my woundedness for your healing, my weakness for your strength, my brokenness for your wholeness, my foolishness for your wisdom, my unrighteousness for your righteousness, and my death for your life. It's the great exchange. Jesus, please be my Savior and my Master from this day forward. Amen. Nothing magic about this prayer. It's really the prayer of a desperate person, if you think about it. A person who sees themselves for what they really are and sees their spiritual need and sees the provision that Jesus has made. The Apostle Paul actually prayed a prayer like this. He doesn't tell us exactly the words that he prayed, but one time he did write to a church in Galatia and he said this, I have been crucified with Christ. Picture that image. That's what Paul said. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul is saying. This is what Paul did. This is what many of us have done here in this room. This is what being a disciple is. It's the great exchange. It's being crucified with Jesus. It's dying daily to self. It's letting Jesus live in you. And you can start that process today if you haven't already. Now, if you've already done that, and I'm sure the majority of us have, you don't need to do that again. You know, in some churches, people get all anxious about this, this thing, and they keep converting over and over and over. And while that's great, I mean, you know, we could all reconvert today, but the truth of the matter is the Bible says we don't need to do that. We, we don't. That's kind of like getting married. Once is enough. Um, <laughs> You can ruminate on that and wonder what I meant, but, but if you're married, you know what I mean. But even if that's the case and, and you made this commitment to Jesus and you, you engaged in this transaction with him years ago, here's what you can do this morning. You can say thank you. And you can renew your devotion and your love to him. And that would delight him. That would please him. That that would uh, be something I'm sure that he would appreciate. And uh, you can do that on this card. We don't have a space for that. But if that's you and you feel like, boy, that is what God would have me do this morning, grab a pen behind you or in front of you and just put your name down and put renew or something like that. Renew. That's what you're doing. But it may be, too, that you have never made the great exchange, and today maybe is a day where God is talking to you. And if you're making that decision, I want to invite you to use that card as well and pray a prayer similar to or like the one on the card and put your name on that card. This is putting a a stake in the ground, saying, today is my day. I'm doing this. I am trusting in Jesus. It's signing on the dotted line. And And would you return that card on your way out? There'll be buckets back there and you can just drop it in. If you're renewing or if you're for the first time praying to receive Jesus, just put it in the bucket. And then I would offer you this. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to be baptizing some folks up here who are professing faith in Jesus. And if you're making a decision to follow him, it may be that you need to be baptized as well. And... um, Next Sunday, November 17th, we're going to have a a little class after the second service. 
And uh, I would invite you to come join me in that. We're going to talk about baptism, what it means, and this whole thing of professing faith in Christ. And uh, we'll have some lunch together. You can sign up for that class out in the, in the lobby. And then on November 24th, we're going to baptize folks who need to be baptized. If that's nobody, then the service will be shorter that Sunday. <laughs> but I invite you to make the great exchange. You know, I, I did that many, many years ago. I was a high school student and uh, was reading the Gospel of John in my bedroom by myself. A friend of mine had given that to me. And my life was pretty empty. You could argue that who's, what high school student's life isn't empty, but uh, mine was pretty empty. I had uh, spent some time in jail a few times and was just getting myself into trouble, doing lots of dumb things and discovering how empty all that was. And uh, this friend of mine gave me a New Testament to read and that's what I was reading. I wasn't telling anybody that. I wasn't admitting that to anybody, but I was reading it. And that's where I heard about this great exchange. That's why I heard about having a life of meaning and a life of hope and a life of purpose uh, simply because you could have a life where you follow Jesus. I didn't need anybody to convince me that I was a sinner or that there was something evil in here. I knew that there was. And I discovered in the pages of the Bible that there was a solution to that problem. And I made the great exchange. And I am not sorry I made that exchange decades and decades ago because there isn't anyone better to follow than Jesus. There isn't anyone who loves you more than Jesus. There isn't anyone who can guide your life better than Jesus. Make the great exchange. Pray with me. Father, you are a good, good God. And you sent us your son who died for us. And I just pray, God, that you would work in all of our lives that this morning would be a morning where we re-up or it would be the morning where we join your family. I pray that this would be a morning where all of us would decide to follow you, Jesus, and make the great exchange. Thank you for meeting us in this place. Thank you for the good news of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.